Good afternoon, everyone. What does it mean to be a father? Have you ever thought about it? What is it, what is it that fathers are supposed to do? What makes the difference between a good father and one not so good? Do you know of any schools that teach young men how to be fathers? Certainly society is in need of such instruction. Our world today is in confusion about sex, about marriage, about the proper role of fathers and mothers. Many in today's world have no real comprehension of why families exist, nor even what a family is supposed to be. One common view in today's permissive society is that fathers are, or families, rather, are supposed to be democratic institutions with nobody really in charge, and especially not the father. And the Bible actually foretold that we would live in such a society toward the end of the age. In Isaiah, in, in Isaiah chapter 3, and this was typical, too, of the ancient Israelites, even at the time of Isaiah. In Isaiah 3 and verse 4, God said, I will give children to be their princes, and babes shall rule over them. The people will be oppressed, everyone by another and everyone by his neighbor. The child will be insolent toward the elder and the base toward the honorable. And that pretty much describes much of the society we live in and how Young people behave toward the elderly and how children often behave toward their parents. In verse 12 of Isaiah 3, it says, As for my people, children are their oppressors, and women rule over them. O my people, those who lead you cause you to err and destroy the way of your paths. And this, again, is precisely true of our society. The leaders, the religious leaders, the political leaders, the educational system, the media that often influences public opinion, all of those elements have destroyed the way of the paths of the people of this nation and of nations all over the world, especially in the Western world. And this applies to family life as much as it applies to various other aspects of our society. Now, some fathers, despite everything, have done very well in nurturing, instructing, and guiding their families. But all too frequently, fathers have abdicated their responsibilities often giving scant attention to their wives and children. Another common occurrence in our society is abusive treatment directed against children and mothers by fathers, by stepfathers, or by live-in boy boyfriends. And we often read about how a woman has been murdered or a child has been murdered or beaten up or abused by fathers or stepfathers or boyfriends. It's essential to our future, however, that the family unit be, be restored, and it must begin, according to Scripture, with the fathers. 
Malachi chapter 4 and verse 5, we read, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. So one of the missions of those representing God is to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. Not This would not apply just to this Elijah figure, whoever that turns out to be, before the coming of Christ. But it also applies in general. It is a part of the mission of those who teach God's way of life to teach about family values and how the families ought to function and how God intended the families function. But there is no school that I know of where men are taught to be fathers. That is where we have specific and valid instruction on how men are to be fathers. I attended actually several different colleges and universities and in none of those universities or colleges was there any course on how to be a father. I attended one of the colleges I attended was Ambassador College and even there there really wasn't much if any specific instruction on how to be fathers or mothers for that matter and Perhaps there should have been, but there wasn't, at least not when I attended there. So where do you go to find out what a father is supposed to be? God created the family, and in a very real sense, God is a family. The obvious place to look for instruction then on how to be a father is the Bible, the Word of God. In the Bible, it's revealed not only that God is the author of the family institution, but that God himself is our father. And God himself is the perfect example of what it means to be a father, what a father should be like, the perfect example of fatherhood. Today I want to discuss from the Bible what kind of father God is and thus what kind of fathers we should be. That is, those of us who have the potential to be fathers or are fathers. But this subject should be of interest not just to men, not just to those who are fathers or maybe become fathers. In this subject are lessons for everyone, for all of us. Because while we may not all be come or be physical fathers in this life, there are principles of human and godly relationships in God's example of fatherhood that we can all learn from and apply. For several reasons, wives and mothers and daughters need to understand these principles just as men do. For one thing, mothers often have a vital role in teaching their sons important principles regarding fatherhood. Moreover, God is the Father of all of us, and it's important to everyone to understand how God relates to us as our Father and how we relate to God as His children. We're told 
in Scripture that God is love. That is, the very character of God is epitomized by one word, and that is love. In 1 John 4 and verse 7, it says, Beloved, let us love one another, for God is of love, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. So we're told that God is love. That is, God, that, that describes, in a nutshell, God's character and His nature. And so we are to love in imitation of God. And we're told that not only is God love and that he who loves is born of God and knows God, we're told that God loves his children, which would certainly logically follow if God is love, then he would certainly be expected to love his children. And we're told in John 5 verse 20, for the Father loves the Son. Now this, here was Jesus talking specifically about himself, but this, as we will see, carries on over to others among his children as well. He said, The Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself does, and he will show him greater works than these that you may marvel. Jesus understood very clearly that he was loved by the Father. In John 16, verse 22 Jesus also told his disciples as he was speaking to them. John 16, verse 27, actually it is. For the Father himself loves you. Notice that Jesus was assuring his disciples, the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came forth from God. In 1 John chapter 3, and verse 1, John wrote, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. Therefore the world does not know us because it did not know Him. God loves us to the point that He regards us as His children. And as we read, God loves his children. He loves actually all mankind as we will see. And all mankind are God's children in certain respects. Not to the same degree or in the same way that those who have yielded to God and received the Holy Spirit are his children. But in the sense that all mankind has been created by God, all human beings are his children. And all human beings are made in the image of God in certain respects. Now, we've been reading about love, but we need to understand about something about the kind of love that God has and that God expresses. It is not what humans often think of as love, and some of the ideas that human beings have about love are frankly perverted and distorted and really are not love at all. 
But the kind of love that God has is love that edifies others, that builds up others. The word edify means to build up. And we're told in Scripture that love edifies the kind of love that God has. In 1 Corinthians 8, verse 1, Paul was writing to the Corinthians, and he said, Now concerning things offered to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. And what he was talking about was a kind of a, a sophistry, a, a false knowledge, or a, 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 a kind of knowledge that people thought they knew something, but didn't really know as much as what they believed or assumed that they knew. But what Paul is telling them that regardless of how much you you think you may know that can lead to vanity and arrogance and pride but he said said love edifies and what he was getting at is it's it's fine to have knowledge but without love knowledge really isn't of a great deal of value because it requires love to make that knowledge really useful and love edifies the word translated love here and in a number of other places in the new testament is the greek word agape and this word agape as used in the bible speaking is speaking of divine love which proceeds from god it is the kind of love that is characteristic of god's nature it is outgoing concern, which manifests itself in benevolent conduct, the kind of conduct that leads to edification or building up of others. God is not the kind of father who is oppressive or who berates and provokes his children. He does not maltreat his children. He does not ignore them. The direction of God's actions as a father is to build up, to edify. God is an active father who constantly displays love for his children and what he does for them. God provides for his children, but much more than that, he teaches them. He sets standards for them. He guides them. He corrects them when necessary. He holds them accountable. He forgives them. He comforts them. He praises them when praise is due. He strengthens them and he encourages them. He rewards them and ultimately he glorifies them. And these qualities of behavior all directed toward building up or edifying are revealed consistently throughout the Bible. God is the progenitor, the ruler, and the head of his family. As we read in Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6, it says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder. And his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now note that this scripture is specifically speaking of the Son, Jesus Christ, as he's referred to elsewhere, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, is the person being referred to here. The Messiah, 
But one of his titles is that he is our father. He is our spiritual father, even as God the Father. The second person, the other person, perhaps would be better stated, in the Godhead, who is referred to in the New Testament by Jesus Christ and others as the Father. But Jesus Christ is also our Father in a spiritual sense. And this title, Father, in the scripture that we just read in Isaiah, is used in the context of government, of rulership. The government will be upon his shoulder, it says, and he is our Father. In Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 14, we read this, For this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might through his Spirit in the inner man. So we are to bow our knees to the Father because the Father is the head of his family. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse, beginning with verse 24, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 24, then comes the end when he that's speaking of Jesus Christ delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and authority and power, for he must reign, that is, the Messiah must reign, until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death, for he has put all things under his feet. But when he says all things are put under him, that is, under the Messiah, Jesus Christ, it is evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. What he's saying is that everything will be subject to the authority of Jesus Christ when all is said and done, with the lone exception of the Father himself. And goes on verse 28, When all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will also be subject to him, that is to the Father, who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. So the Father rules his family. He is the head of the family, and he is the authority, the supreme authority in his family. But although God rules his creation and has supreme authority over everything and everyone, God is not a tyrant. God rules in love. And he rules in such a way as to edify all the members of his family. He's not selfish, he's not self-centered, he's not on a, some kind of a power trip and bent on lording it over people just for the sake of lording it over people and being abusive or uncaring in his conduct. Quite to the contrary, God rules in love. And he rules in such a way as to edify everyone and everyone benefits from the fact that he does rule in such a way. Have you ever thought about the fact that you would not exist except for the fact that the Father, that is God, 
through Jesus Christ, created you and gave you life. None of us would exist except for the fact that God created us. As we read in Deuteronomy chapter 32 and verse 6, Deuteronomy 32 and verse 6, Do you thus deal with the Lord, O foolish and unwise people? Is he not your father who bought you? Has he not made you and established you? The Hebrew word kana, translated bought here in the New King James, where it says, Is he not your father who bought you? could also be translated created. In the New English translation, the same verse is translated, or this part of this verse, this phrase is, is he not your father, your creator? He has made you and established you. God created us. We would not exist other than uh, for the, but for the fact that God did create us. And not only did God create us, but he also bought us. He purchased us with the blood of Jesus Christ, his son. As we read in 1 Peter 1 and verse 17, as, as a slave might be purchased and redeemed from punishment, or a criminal might be uh, purchased from his life may be purchased from those who would avenge some crime that he has committed. Jesus Christ has purchased us, or God the Father has purchased us, and Christ has purchased us with the blood of Christ. And so we read in, in 2 Peter, 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 17, If you call on the Father who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear, meaning during this lifetime, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. The reason that God sent Jesus Christ and that Jesus Christ became a human being, he was changed from God through some miraculous act that we do not and no doubt could not understand. But nevertheless, that's what is revealed in Scripture that God, who was Jesus Christ, the person in the God family who we know as Jesus Christ gave up his divinity to become a human being. And he did so so that he could shed his blood and die to pay for our sins. At least that's part of why he did that. And so God not only created us, but he has redeemed our lives from the death penalty, from the penalty that we have earned through our sins. Now, that is an expression of God's love toward us. 
think about it. That's something actually we ought to think about often. We ought to think about both of those things, about the fact that God created us to begin with and also that God has redeemed us, paid for our sins with his own blood, the blood of Jesus Christ. And that is an expression of the love that God has for us. It's not the only expression, but it is a very important expression of God's love toward us. Now, notice in Deuteronomy 32, beginning with verse 8, Deuteronomy 32 and verse 8, how the father of the tribes of Judah led them, guided them, and nurtured them. This was, uh, I said Judah, I actually meant to say Jacob or Israel, the father of the tribes of Israel, or Jacob, guided and nurtured them as we read in Deuteronomy 32, verse 8, when the Most High divided their inheritance to the nations when he separated the sons of Adam. That is, when he divided to the different nations the territories that they would be given on the earth. It says he set their boundaries the boundaries of the people according to the number of the children of Israel. For the Lord's portion is his people Jacob. Is the place of his inheritance. He found him in a desert land and in a wasteland, a howling wilderness. He encircled him, he instructed him. He kept him as the apple of his eye. As an eagle stirs up its nest, hover over, hovers over its young spreading out its wings, taking them up, carrying them on its wings. So the Lord alone led him, and there was no foreign God with him. So this is an expression of how God led and cared for the people of Israel, the people that he had chosen out of all the families of the earth. And the reason that he had chosen them is because of the faithfulness of their forefather Abraham. The rest of mankind had basically rejected God and didn't want anything to do with the true God. But Abraham was found faithful and because of his faithfulness, God said that he would bless his descendants in a special way. And God chose the people of Israel to be his own special nation, a people that he intended to set an example for the rest of mankind. And he cared for them. He, he led them through the wilderness. He gave them everything they needed. He led them into a beautiful land that was a land, as it is described in Scripture, flowing with milk and honey, an abundant land, a, a, a rich land. But... And, and in that land, he gave to each family an inheritance and the ability to live in freedom and to prosper. And he gave them everything that they needed. He gave them laws and, and a, a government that would have enabled them to continue to live at peace and in prosperity perpetually if they had 
actually yielded to his laws and obeyed them. God guided his children. Even when they went astray, God directed them back to the right paths. And they did go astray. In fact, they pretty much insisted on almost constantly going astray. But notice in Jeremiah chapter 3 and verse 4, God said to the people of Judah and Israel, Will you not turn, or will you not from this time cry to me? My Father, you are the guide of my youth. This is what God wanted out of his people, to recognize him as their father, their guide. My Father, you are the guide of my youth. And God said through the prophet Jeremiah in verse 12 of Jeremiah 3, Go and proclaim these words toward the north and say, Return, backsliding Israel says the Lord. I will not cause my anger to fall on you, for I am merciful, says the Lord. I will not remain angry forever. Only acknowledge your iniquity, that you have transgressed against the Lord your God and have scattered your charms to alien deities under every green tree. And you have not obeyed my voice, says the Lord. Now God warned the people of Israel that there would be severe punishment if they persisted in disobedience. But notice the appeal that God made to them, and this was something he did repeatedly over and over again. He admonished them and pleaded with them to turn away from their sins, to recognize him as their father and their guide. God had taught Israel and God will teach us if we are receptive to his instruction as a loving father. We can learn from God if we will learn from him as Jesus said in John chapter 6 verse 45 as it is written in the prophets they shall all be taught by God. Therefore, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Now, it's up to us, as we just read, whether we're willing to hear God and to learn from Him. But if we do, then we will be led down the right path. And Jesus said everyone, sooner or later, is going to be taught by God. Even those who don't want to be, necessarily, are going to be. But we should want to be taught by God, and God is more than ready to teach us, to instruct us, to guide us, if we're prepared to listen. And that's as it should be. As a loving Father, God seeks to mold us and shape us into His children, children pleasing to Him, as any loving Father would want to do. In Isaiah 64 and verse 8, it says, But now, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay. You are our potter. And all we are the work of your hand. Now, this doesn't mean that we don't have free moral agency, but what it does mean is that God, as a loving father or mother for that matter, 
wants to shape and mold the character of his children. And we're, we're supposed to, as his children, we're supposed to be malleable. We're supposed to be, to react in such a way that we can be molded so that we will be the work of his hand. That's how God wants to relate to us and deal with us as his children, to mold us and shape us, to shape our character so that we are the kind of children that he can be pleased with. And I believe that would be the desire of any loving father in dealing with his children to want to mold and shape them and help direct them so that they can grow and develop into maturity and blossom and reach their potential. In Ephesians chapter 1 verse 1, Ephesians 1 and verse 1, Paul wrote, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Notice Paul is pointing out that the Father has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. God is ready to supply all of our needs, not only physically, but spiritually. And you might say especially spiritually. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons, by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. God's very purpose in creating humankind was to make them his sons. Not only physically, not only in the sense that they were created in the image of God in a limited way physically, but to mold and shape them into his image spiritually. That's why God created mankind. And it says that that was done according to the good pleasure of his will. To the praise of the glory of his grace by which he has made us accepted in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, through Christ that is, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence having made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure which he purposed in himself. That in the dispensation of the fullness of times he might gather together in one all things, that includes all mankind, gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. In him also we have obtained an inheritance being predestined according to the purpose 
of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that we who are who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. Then going on in verse 15 of Ephesians 1, Paul went on to say, Therefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in, your, in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. This is what Paul was praying for the church, the people that he served, that the Father would give them wisdom and knowledge of him and his purpose. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? And what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe? according to the working of his mighty power. Now these things are things that God can teach us if we're prepared to learn. Things that he will teach us if we are willing to learn from him. In Ephesians 2 and verse 4, Paul wrote, God who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. And then in verse 10 he said, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. If we are yielding to God, if we are being taught by him, if we are yielding to his instruction and teachings, then we are his workmanship. The character that is developed through our learning and developing and growing in the knowledge that God makes available to us is something that is a product of God's workmanship, his instruction, his teaching, and his spirit working in us. And we are created, as Paul wrote, in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared. In other words, he has purposed beforehand that we should walk in them. That's, that's the goal that God has for us as his children. He is our Father, purposes that we should do good works and walk in them. Now again, this ought to be readily apparent that any loving father would want to train and teach his children so that they will walk in good works, that their lives would be productive and fruitful and beneficial not just to themselves but other people. That's what God intends for us. In verse 18 of Ephesians 2, Paul wrote, For through him we both have access by one Spirit to the Father, that is, through Jesus Christ, we have access to the Father. 
Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. We're members of God's household. We're his children. In a, in a sense that is the potential for all human beings, but most human beings have not realized that potential yet, not having received the Spirit of God yet. goes on to say, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. A dwelling place of God in the Spirit. So, we should be able to see from what we have read in these scriptures that God, as a loving Father, teaches us, molds us, shapes us through his instruction into what he wants us to become. Productive and fruitful and able to live full lives that not only are worth living for us, but also worthwhile to other people as well, and that are pleasing to God. God provides for his people, and he treats them with loving kindness and mercy. Notice in Psalm 103, verse 2, beginning with verse 2, Bless the Lord, O my soul. This is the 103rd Psalm. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Do we forget God's benefits? We're instructed not to. Who forgives all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from destruction, who crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercies, who satisfies your mouth with good things, so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord executes righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the children of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in mercy. Now notice the characteristics of God and think about this in terms of God being our Father. He's not quick to punish us. He loads us with all, all sorts of benefits. He's merciful and gracious to us. As it says, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in mercy. Now, he does get angry at times, and there are times when he punishes us because we need it but that's not all the time he's far less quick to punish us often than what we might think that he would be if he were like many fathers 
who sometimes are very quick to punish. Not that, uh, not that that's wrong necessarily, but if you look at the history of how God has dealt with Israel, he often warned them many times over a period of many years of what was going to occur if they did not repent and was very patient in dealing with them. Now, he warned them, he instructed them, he told them what would happen. But he was not necessarily always quick to administer punishment. It says in verse 9, he will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. In other words, when God is angry, he acts and then his anger is over with. He has not dealt with us according to our sins. If he had dealt with us according to our sins, we would not be here. But he has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor punished us according to our iniquities. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgression from us. As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. So God pities us. He, he takes pity on us. He, he is more than willing to be merciful, especially when we respond to his instruction or even his punishment by expressing our regret and sorrow and repentance for how we have conducted ourselves. James 1 verse 17, James wrote, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation uh, or shadow of turning. In other words, we can rely on God. He doesn't change. He, he doesn't. He doesn't. He doesn't have this Mr. Hyde and Doctor Jekyll personality. But he is consistent in his love toward us. And as James wrote, every good gift comes from God. In verse eighteen, he said, "Of his own will, he." brought us forth by the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures, of his creation. In other words, those who are converted in this age are just the first fruits of his creation, of his spiritual creation, of the creation of his eternal family. And what he is doing with those who have been receptive to his instruction now it's just a foretaste of what he's going to be doing with all mankind eventually. In Jeremiah chapter 3 and verse 19. Jeremiah 3 and verse 19. But I said, how can I put you among the children and give you a pleasant land, a beautiful heritage of the hosts of nations? So notice the question here that God is asking of his people, the people that he had chosen, but the people who had rebelled against him and rejected him and 
the question is, how can I put you among the children? And what does he want to do for the children? He wants to give them a pleasant land, a beautiful heritage. And he said, and I said, you shall call me my father and not turn away from me. God is still dealing with Israel in such a way that eventually all the people of Israel will say to God, my father, and they shall not turn away from him. Unfortunately, that day has not come yet, but it will come in God's time. In Jeremiah 31 and verse 9, it tells about that time when God will redeem and restore Israel. It says, They shall come with weeping and with supplications. I will lead them. I will cause them to walk by the rivers of water in a straight way in which they shall not stumble. For I am a father to Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn. God still regards himself as the father of Israel, even though the people of Israel have rejected him. And we hear in our public forums today more and more open ridicule of the very idea of God. And our leaders openly mock and ridicule the scriptures. And our people, in at least in a figurative sense, are shaking their fists in God's face. Not all of them necessarily, but certainly the majority are in a state of constant rebellion against God. In verse 14 of Jeremiah 31 is a further prophecy about how God is going to redeem the situation. And in verse 14 he says, I will satiate the soul of the priests with abundance. And my people shall be satisfied with my goodness, says the Lord. When Israel is redeemed and they are under God's tutelage and his protection, he is going to provide such abundance that it will be more than enough. In verse 20, it says, Is Ephraim my dear son? Is he a pleasant child? For though I spoke against him, I earnestly remember him still. Therefore my heart yearns for him. I will surely have mercy on him, says the Lord. God loves Israel. He loves the people that he redeemed out of Egypt. He loves all mankind, really, in spite of our sins. And he loves Israel, but he also loves the people of Asia, the people of Africa, the people of Europe, people all over the world. And what he's going to do for Israel, he's going to do for mankind eventually. Matthew chapter 5, verse 44, Jesus said, I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. 
Now we might ask ourselves, is this how we deal with circumstances in our lives? Do we love our enemies? Do we bless those who curse us? Do we do good to those who hate us? Do we pray for those who spitefully use us and persecute us? We should, and this is, of course, completely contrary to human nature. But this is what Jesus said we should do. And notice he went on to say why we ought to do that. He said that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For he makes his Son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. By doing these things, we are becoming like our Father. These things, they're very difficult to do for human beings. Matthew 7 and verse 7, Jesus said, beginning with verse 7 of Matthew 7, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you for everyone who asks receives and he who seeks find finds and to him who knocks it will be opened or what man is there among you who if his son asks for bread will give him a stone or if he asks for a fish will he give him a serpent if you being then if you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask Him? So we need to ask God for our needs and God will provide for those needs. Now He may not do it immediately. He may not give us everything we would wish for right away but ultimately God is going to provide more than enough to take care of our needs not just in this lifetime but for eternity Colossians 1 verse 12 says giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light he has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love. God has not only planned an inheritance for us, and that inheritance is an eternal inheritance in His kingdom, but He has qualified us through the sacrifice that Jesus Christ made to be partakers of of that inheritance if we repent and he has delivered us in a preliminary sense into the kingdom of the son of his love not that we have fully attained it yet but we have access to that kingdom we are under God's protection and mercy we no longer have the death penalty hanging over us we are in a sense citizens of his kingdom 
in 1 Peter 1 and verse 3, Peter wrote, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to His abundant mercy, has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. Not that that reward will be given to us in heaven, but it's reserved in heaven. Who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. We may wonder, as Christians, why we have to suffer various things. Many of us do suffer. Suffer various physical infirmities. We suffer sometimes financial problems and various other kinds of problems in our lifetimes. But that doesn't take away from the fact that God has an inheritance, an eternal inheritance prepared for us and reserved in heaven, ready to be revealed in the last time, that is, at the time of Christ's coming. In Revelation 21, verse 7, we read, He who overcomes shall inherit all things, that is, the entirety of the universe, everything, will be given to the family of God. Everything will be shared with his children. And says, I will be his God and he will be my son. So if we repent of our sins and if we remain steadfast and faithful and overcome the obstacles that would cause us to be led astray, then we will be the sons of God in his kingdom and we will inherit all that God has to give us, which is everything. So God does provide for his family in a multitude of different ways. As a loving father, God is concerned for the well-being of his children. He knows that lawless and destructive behavior will bring them to ruin. Now again, you can apply some common sense to this. Any father that has any common sense at all knows that if a child indulges in lawless and destructive behavior, it's going to bring him to ruin. And God is no different as our Father. So God has set standards of conduct for His children. And He expects them to adhere to those standards of conduct. In Deuteronomy 30 and verse 15, God said to His people Israel, He said, See, I've set before you today life and good, death and evil. In that I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in His ways, to keep His commandments, His statutes, and His judgments, that you may live and multiply, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land which you go to possess. So God gave them instructions, a mode of behavior that they were expected to observe for their own good. 
He said, if you do this, if you obey these instructions, it will be of great advantage to you. It will do you good. It will prolong your lives. But if you disobey, if you go a different direction, if you go the way of lawless, destructive behavior, you're going down the path of death and evil. And Micah 6 and verse 8 says, He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God? To do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Is that unreasonable that God would expect that? Would it be unreasonable for any father to expect that of his children? In Matthew 5, verse 48, Jesus said, Therefore you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. The word translated shall be here is in the future tense in the Greek and indicates that we are to become perfect. That is, that is the goal that God wants us to strive to attain we ought to be seeking to become perfect not that we're perfect yet but we need to strive to become perfect and the way this is done as you read the context of this scripture is by imitating our father because God loves everyone and he is merciful to all as we just read a moment ago and if we are merciful to others, as we read earlier, we are, will be the sons of God. The way we grow in perfection is by imitating the Father, striving to become like Him because He is perfect, and He is perfect in love toward everyone. In 1 Peter 1 and verse 13, Therefore gird up the loins of your mind, be sober and rest your hope fully upon the grace of that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's when our real rewards will come. Those of us who have been sick and not healed, there won't be any question about healing at that time. There won't be anybody sick who is resurrected from the grave. That is, they won't be sick after they're resurrected. All those things that we have prayed for, and hope for will be fulfilled at that time, if they're not fulfilled before that before that time. And so Paul said, or Peter said, uh, gird up the lines of your mind, be sober, and put your hope fully upon that grace brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ as obedient children. As obedient children. This is what God really wants to see. Now, no matter what, our problems might be, or difficulties, God wants to see that we are obedient. He wants to see us as obedient children, not conforming ourselves to the former lusts as in our ignorance, or as in your ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, so you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, it, it is written be holy, for I am holy. So God wants us to imitate him, as obedient children, conform ourselves 
to his standards so that we can be rewarded in the resurrection. And there will be rewards presently as well. Second Corinthians chapter 6, verse 17, Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. I will be a father to you. If we do what? If we come out from among the lawless and the rebellious and the evil and be different. If we reject idolatry and falsehoods, lies and evil, God will receive us and he says, I will be a father to you and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Second Corinthians 7 and verse 1, Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. God wants us to be, be as we read earlier, to become perfect in holiness by imitating His example, by striving to become like Him. In Ezekiel 18 and verse 30, God said, Therefore I will judge you, O house of Israel, every one according to his ways. Yes, as a father judges the conduct of his children, God judges our conduct, and he holds us accountable for it. I will judge you, O house of Israel, every one according to his ways, says the Lord God. Repent and turn from all your transgressions, so that iniquity will not be your ruin. Cast away from you all the transgressions which you have committed, and get yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. For why should you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of one who dies, says the Lord God. Therefore turn and live. And this is what God expects of us. Now we read earlier that God is great in mercy and kindness, but when necessary, God corrects us as a loving father, corrects his children. In 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 31, Paul said if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. And this is being judged in a negative way. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord that we may not be condemned with the world. If we would look at ourselves, examine ourselves, and honestly evaluate our conduct and behavior and attitudes and repent, then there would be no need for further judgment. But it says if we don't do that, God will judge us and He will chasten us. If, we, if we're not controlling ourselves, if we're not managing our own conduct and behavior in a proper way, then God will eventually correct us and chasten us, just as any loving father would do if his child is misbehaving. In Hebrews 12, verse 5, Hebrews 12, verse 5, And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as sons, my son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, 
nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? That is, a father who's actually doing his job. But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. One of the reasons that children need a father is because fathers, if they're doing their job as fathers, will generally chasten and discipline children when they need it. As God does us. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days, that is the physical fathers, chastened us as seemed best to them, but he for our profit, that we may be partakers of his holiness. That's why God corrects us, so that we can become holy. Now, no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, strengthen the hands which hang down and the feeble knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be dislocated, but rather healed. When God chastens us, it is for our good. It is to correct our conduct. It is to help us get back on the right path. It is to make us holy. And so, if we find ourselves in that position where we are sinning and we are conducting ourselves in a way that is not right and we are corrected by God in whatever way God may choose to correct us and there are various ways that he does that but we ought not to be discouraged by that we ought to be encouraged by that and respond to it in a positive way and realize that if we respond positively it's for our good now God doesn't just correct us and then walk off and forget about it God also comforts us when we need comforting And this is made plain as well in many scriptures. In Psalm 23 and verse 4, David wrote, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. Psalm 71 and verse 20, You who have shown me great and severe troubles shall revive me again and bring me up from the depths of the earth. You shall increase my greatness and comfort me on every side. So God knows when we need comforting and if we're looking to him, he will provide that comfort. In Psalm 119 verse 41, let your mercies come also to me, Lord, Your salvation according to your word, so shall I have an answer for him who reproaches me, for I trust in your word. 
Take not the word of truth utterly out of my mouth, for I have hoped in your ordinances. So shall I keep your law continually forever and ever, and I will walk at liberty, for I seek your precepts. I will speak of your testimonies also before kings and will not be ashamed, and I will delight myself in your commandments, which I love. My hands also I will lift up to your commandments, which I love, and I will meditate on your statutes. Remember the word to your servant, upon which you caused me to hope. This is my comfort in my affliction, for your word has given me life. When we're afflicted, we need to remember the promises of God's word. We need to remember his commandments, and we should take comfort in those promises. In 2 Corinthians 1 and verse 3, Paul wrote, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our tribulation. That doesn't say we won't have tribulation, but it says that God comforts us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so also our consolation or our comfort also abounds through Christ. Second Thessalonians 2 and verse 16, Now the may, may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and our God and Father who has loved us and given us everlasting consolation and good hope by grace comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. So God is ready to comfort us when we need it. And one of the ways that he does that is through his promises, through his word, which we need to keep in mind, especially when we are suffering, when we are hurting because of some catastrophe or calamity or infirmity or persecution or other difficulty in our lives. God also praises his children when praise is due. We've been talking about correction, about chastening and so forth, but God also stands more than ready to praise us when praise is called for. In Second Peter 1 and verse 17, this is speaking of Jesus Christ, and it says, For he received from God the Father honor and glory. When such a voice came to him from the excellent glory, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Notice that God praised Jesus Christ. And in Romans 2 and verse 27, Will not the physically uncircumcised, if he fulfills the law, judge you who, even with your written code and circumcision, are a transgressor of the law? For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit." and not in the letter whose praise is not from men, 
but from God. And so if we are doing those things that are in accordance with God's laws, then we can expect God's praise. And it doesn't matter what our background, what our what our ancestry is, what our race is, nationality, or any of those other things. God is prepared to praise anyone who will practice His word. In First Corinthians chapter four and verse five, therefore judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes, who will bring who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the hearts, then each one's praise will come from God. Paul had a lot of enemies. You might be surprised at that, but it's very clear, especially in reading the two letters he wrote to the Corinthians, but some of the other letters also reveal the fact that Paul had enemies within the church. And yet what he was saying is be careful about making premature judgments about things because eventually everything is going to come out into the open. And then he says when that occurs... Each one's praise will come from God. It doesn't really matter much right now what men think of you if you're doing what God is pleased with. You know, men may ridicule you and make fun of you and and think you're strange and weird because you believe things that they don't believe. But... Eventually, everything's going to be brought to light. And then your praise will come from God, and that's a lot going to be worth a lot more than the praise of any human being. God also empowers and strengthens us as our Father. In Ephesians 3 and verse 14, For this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, as we read earlier, I believe, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might through his Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with the saints what is the width and the length and the depth and the height, to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now think about what that means, to be filled with the fullness of God. To him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, To him be glory by the church, in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. God has far more power than we can even imagine. And he can strengthen us through that power. 
Paul wrote in Philippians 4, verse 13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And finally, God will reward his children in due time. As we read earlier in a different uh, verse, but this one is similar. Jesus said, love your enemies, do good and lend, hoping for nothing in return, and your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High, for He is kind to the unthankful and the evil. God will reward us if we do those things that are pleasing to Him. Colossians 3 and verse 23, Whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. For you serve the Lord Christ. We don't serve men. We should be thinking along the lines of striving to just please men. We should be seeking to please God and seeking the reward that can come from Him alone. In Hebrews 10, verse 35, Therefore do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. And in Revelation 22, and verse 12, Jesus said, Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. While the world society often denigrates the family and heaps scorn on family values, God sees the family in a positive light. God is a loving father whose primary concern is for his children. And he is focused on nurturing them and helping them to reach their potential in every way possible. God loves, he provides for, he teaches, he molds, he corrects, he comforts, and strengthens his children. He is the perfect example of what a father should be. We need to be deeply thankful as his children and grateful to our father and love him above anything or anyone else. And we need to strive to become like him.